Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hi, this is Bachelor Clues from Game of Roses, of course, and I want to talk about Club Med. Everybody knows Club Med has been the pioneer of the all-inclusive resort since 1950 with almost 70 resorts worldwide, ranging from beachside destinations in the Caribbean and Mexico to exotic locations like the Maldives and Morocco or even the mountain destinations like Japan and the European Alps. Dine on delicious gourmet cuisine, enjoy more than 20 activities, and make memories with your family. For more information, visit clubmed.us or call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor. This is The Guardian. The attack will be at the next election no matter what they announce they're going to do. You can't believe them because they broke a promise last time. And I think that's why the further reform conversation is so interesting, that it's Mm. that much more politically difficult to break the second promise after the first. Hello, I'm Paul Karp, Chief Political Correspondent at Guardian Australia. We're coming to you from Ngunnawal country. It's midweek, which means we're talking about the Guardian Essential poll with the Executive Director of Essential, Peter Lewis. Welcome. Hey, Paul. We've got tax reforms, housing, the right to disconnect, and even a mention of Tay-Tay. So let's get into this fortnight's data, Peter. Let's rock. Now, the Coalition have been running around saying that changing Stage 3 income tax cuts is a curtain raiser to even bigger, scarier tax changes. Mm. So let's start with the other reforms uh, on the crossbench and Greens to-do list, but not on Labor's to-do list. Are voters up for cracking down on negative gearing and other tax concessions? Yeah, it's kind of, I think, a bit of the Oliver Twist having had a little bit of backsliding on regressive tax policy. I know particularly the Greens are saying, please, sir, can we have some more. Look, our polling can be read two ways. One is that on most measures that we put forward to address some of these tax inequities, and I'm talking about income splitting on family taxes, I'm talking about limiting negative gearing to one investment property, I'm talking about capital gains tax, and I'm even talking about a death tax, although it's probably a little bit different and we shouldn't call it that anyway. But on those first three, it's about two to one in favour of revision. So for every one person that's opposed, there's two people saying they're open for it. So on um, on family trusts, it's 50-21. On negative gearing, it's 44-21. And on capital gains tax, it's 42-20. So two to one. The problem is there's a big bit in the middle who neither support nor oppose or are undecided, which is really the battleground. And I think until a controversial proposal gets into the high 50s, early 60s, it's pretty vulnerable. So I know your headline on reading this was lukewarm support. I think that's fair enough. It feels to me that the work to make this a risk-free revision of commitments or broken promise or whatever you want to call it isn't there yet and there's more work that wouldn't be needed to be done. I'll tell you one interesting thing, though, in the crosstabs there. 
on both negative gearing and capital gains, Labor voters are more in favour of the revision than Greens. And I wonder for one theory says the Greens are actually playing a voter acquisition game in stapling these measures to the current housing. Um, the other one is just the recognition that Green voters are higher income earners, so they've probably got a bit more skin in the multi-property game. Yes, and of course, Peter's referring there to uh, the Greens announcing this week that they want to use Labor's help to buy legislation, the shared equity scheme for home ownership, to push cracking down on negative gearing. And the form that you asked that in was only allowing people to claim negative gearing on one property, which is... That's a more modest proposal Mm. than what Bill Shorten took to the 2019 election. Uh, It's sort of consistent with what Liberal Senator Maria Kovacic called for in her heretical first speech, Mm. suggesting capping negative gearing. Um, And, and yeah, I agree. You can look at these numbers in in one of two ways. You know, if you see an amber light when you're driving, some people take that as an indication (laughs) to stop and some people take that as an indication. Quick, get through before it turns red. Exactly. There's, there's still time, so 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 press the accelerator. Yeah. The, the, the other thing that struck me on our tables, and if people want to look at the trend lines, essentialreport.com.au, on all those three measures, and one of the reasons we asked the negative gearing in that one property, it was just the way we've been asking it previously, so we get the trend lines. But on all those three measures, the appetite for the reformers dropped between 7 and 10% over the last 12 months. So the tide isn't swimming in that direction for more. It's not like the wave has gone up to 44% on negative gearing. It's actually come down. So that's kind of interesting. I didn't round out the tax on deceased estates worth more than $5 million, which is only at 37%. That's the one that's not really on the agenda because everyone knows what the social media campaign death tax will look like, even though it's probably one measure to really deal with the embedded generational inequity and the fact that it only ever, we used to have inheritance taxes until Joe Biocchi-Peterson got rid of them in the 80s to convince all the old people to move to Queensland and the other states were silly enough to match them rather than saying, just go. I wondered if the slight fall in uh, support for other reforms was maybe Labor voters saying, oh, give us a break. We've already done the big, bad, broken promise by revamping stage three tax cuts. So let's move on to that and ask, what did people make of that? Did people support trimming the benefits for high income earners to give more to low and middle income earners? So a couple of observations. The first one is something from my research lead running the Essential Report, John Remington, which was there's been no real shift on voting intention or 2PP or leaders or anything off the back of that. So um, the actual broken promise um, or cost of living relief package or whatever you want to describe it, it's been this massive bomb into the political debate, but it has not shifted the numbers on our two-party plus or um, our um, primary vote at all, which I think is interesting. In terms of the awareness of the cuts, only about half of people say they've heard much about it at all. Support, albeit with that is 57%, 16% opposed, 28% undecided. And I guess the other thing that we should say in terms of a key metric on this is 
do people think that election promises should be broken? That's at 52.48 saying it is never acceptable to break as opposed to it's acceptable to break. So you've got a few different data points there, don't you? You've got an overwhelming acceptance but with high don't knows on the actual policy. You've got a marginal negative on the broken promise. So that's in terms of the contest of narrative. They've both got a bit to work with. And above that, you've got political trend lines that are flatlining. So I don't know, does that mean they've got away with it? I don't know. I think it's going fine for them. The fact that um, Dutton didn't oppose, but I also think there is this Easter egg that's sitting there in the lead up to the next election on the broken promise that could still be weaponised. Yeah, so a majority support the particular changes, but then a majority also say that they're generally against breaking promises. So yeah, the coalition's trying to plant the seeds that you can't trust anything that Anthony Albanese says about tax in general to try or and get those. anything in general. So the, the, the attack will be at the next election, no matter what they announce they're going to do, you can't believe them because they broke a promise last time. And I think Labor's response will be we've, we've been managing the country and things are going okay, assuming they are. And I, I think that's why the further reform conversation is so interesting that it's, mm. I just think it's that much more politically difficult to break the, the second promise <laughs> after the first. Screw me once, shame on you. Screw me twice. Although technically they already rated the super balances over $3 million, so maybe it is by degrees getting people more appetite for reform. But wasn't that one going to the next election? So the timing was it wasn't going to be broken in this cycle, which is the old... John Howard, get out of free for your broken promise card. Well, forgotten all about the big balance super after they've rejigged stage three tax cuts. So <laughs> it'll, it'll be hard to get any message through on that. You mentioned no big changes on the leaders, but I did notice that the favourability rating for Peter Dutton did tick up. Perhaps people were pleased that the coalition got out of the way of the tax cuts. Let me have a look at this. Maybe they were watching Nemesis and they saw the promise to smile more. You shouldn't say that. Anyone would think we're the ABC being that negative towards our illustrious opposition leader. His negative has gone down from 37 in December to 33. So that's, and his positives have gone up from 28 to 33. So he's net, he's net neutral which is the first time he hasn't been net negative. So 33, 33, and then the PM is 35 negative, 33 positive. So he's net negative too. So his stop press readers, I wish I'd seen this before you'd done your piece, in a beauty contest of favourability at the moment, people think Peter Dutton's prettier. It's not a direct head-to-head. It's not a preferred prime minister measure. I was surprised to see them level pegging at the moment. You know, obviously PMs don't tend to stay stratospheric forever, but good pick up. Dutton went on ABC 7.30 last week and accused Sarah Ferguson of a very ABC or very Guardian framing of the the question. So uh, maybe uh, Mr Dutton should come on the Australian Politics podcast and throw the essential figures back in our face and tell us how popular he is. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe not on the polling podcast, but just just an open invitation. Um, uh, Now, I wanted to ask about economic uh, security because... 
Perhaps the reason Labor felt emboldened to change the stage three tax cuts is it looks like there's been a deterioration in how secure people Mm. feel about their financial circumstances. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, we have this standing question where we ask people to self-identify their financial circumstances, comfortable, secure, struggling or in serious difficulty. 12 months ago, we had those that were either comfortable or secure at 55, those struggling and in serious difficulty at 45. It is now inverted to 42.58. So that's significant, like a 26% net shift. So it's 13% more putting themselves in the serious difficulty and 13% down on the feeling positive. So, Or 1% for every interest rate rise might be another way to think about it. That is a good way of slicing and dicing it, Paul. I'm just trying to see if in terms of the serious difficulty, and that is identified as I am struggling to be able to pay off the bills, and that's a regular concern, that 13%. It got to 16% in November, so it's not the highest it's been, but that is... 5842, I think, is the biggest gap we've had since October last year, which was after, the, I think, the last of the rate rises when it was at 6535, which may just be an outlier, but they, they are quite large numbers. Yeah, and, and secure, I'm able to pay bills and usually have money spare for savings or buying luxuries. That's down eight points to 30%, mm. and that's that's lower that's lower than than even in that uh, November figure where you said that serious difficulty was higher. So it's right. So another way of looking at that is you've got fifty eight percent of the voting public who are looking at the world through the lens of either being in serious or a degree of financial insecurity. So we wonder why the whole debate's being framed around however you want to call it. Like the frame at the moment is cost of living relief. As we've spoken about in the past, I'm not sure that's the best way of understanding what's actually going on, but you can see why that's driving the discussion. Skipping to another question though, when you ask people about their personal outlook on life, it seemed that most people were glass half full people, notwithstanding, you know, it might be struggling a, a bit financially. Yes. I was testing out a thesis here and I think it partly holds. My question was, is there a dissonance between the way we look at our world through the media and the way we actually experience the world? So we asked two companion questions. Personal outlook on life, how will you describe your personal outlook on life from very positive to very negative with a five-point spread? And we basically had 56% of people being very positive or somewhat positive and 16% being somewhat negative or very negative. The very negative was actually 3%. Then we asked the same formula but said, how do you usually feel when you consume the news? And then the split went from 56% positive to 20% negative and from 18% negative to 42% negative. So I was just interested in... I don't know what that says, and I'm not saying that we should just... People hate the news and it makes them sad. Well, no, but the angry people get angrier as well, so the cross-tab on that's really interesting. But I think the point I was trying to make was that the world we see through our public debates is not the world we experience personally. I'm not saying that we shouldn't have news that challenges us or gets us out of our comfort zone, but it's almost like we've got these two 
competing realities, our world where most of us think things are pretty good and the world as portrayed through the media where most people think things are pretty bad. And how we reconcile those two I think is really interesting and was why I wanted to talk about Taylor Swift. We can chat Taylor Swift. Is, Is Taylor Swift an improvement to people's mindset? No, but I think she's really interesting because she's like this cultural phenomenon in a world of fragmentation. She's She exists in relation to a lot of people, although I asked people, you know, did they want to go and see her or you know, wish, wish they were going or not interested in seeing? 76% said they weren't interested. But of the 3% who say they're going, there's another 20% who wish they were going and in under... 34s, it gets up to about a third of the population wishes they were going. So it's not nothing. But what I tried to do, and it's up there on The Guardian, is see the way she uses her celebrity and her cultural dominance and how she grows it and if there are any lessons for our Prime Minister. And I don't know why I drew the connection. I just remembered on that terrible day when he'd lost his economic trivia contest the day before and flunked out on some national count number. He turned up the next day and said he was just going to be shake it like off. Taylor Swift and shake it off. So, was, But he quotes Midnight Oil. He quotes, he quotes everyone. But when he was at his moment of greatest vulnerability, he turned to Tay-Tay. Like, so I have been curious watching her from a distance. And then for me, what made me I'm not saying I'm a Swifty, but appreciate her art was um, during lockdown, she did a collaboration with my favourite band, The National, who are like the sad dad music. And who would have thought a pop star and the sad dads? And they actually created this amazing music that both artists used on different albums that kind of was greater than the sum of its parts. And a couple of years ago, I accused Scott Morrison of being the Billy Joel of Australian politics because he was pure pastiche. He just stole lots of different bits of music, which is the criticism of Joel. Whereas I think what Taylor Swift does is more interesting because she generally collaborates and makes better music. So then I started thinking, what about Albo, the collaborator? He's working with all these different groups, including the Greens, including the Teals. And his strength has been there is a broader progressive base than just the ALP, even to the extent. And then the second bit was, so she's a collaborator, but she also has built this really active community. So some of you would have seen over the last couple of weeks when the deep fake pawns were spreading on Twitter, her whole support base kind of piled into the platform to deprioritise the filth and sort of came to her defence. And it struck me that there was a bit of grassroots organising that you can learn off the back of your fame as well. And I guess the context of all this is back to our original conversation. Labor and the Greens are starting or shaping up for a fight on negative gearing. And I think particularly on Labor the instinct will be to punch hard at the Greens because they're making their life hard. But the problem is for the fans that sit one level out that just support progressive politics, there's basically you're watching people that you basically agree with and value connect with fighting and I, I just wonder if there's a different way of going about it. So I don't know if any of that's particularly coherent. That's why I'm a writer, not a talker. But I do think Whenever there's a big cultural moment, it's interesting to reflect. The final thing I reflect is that as all these people are getting immense pleasure out of watching someone perform, they're actually doing the opposite of what we do in politics. We all get together to hate. They're getting together to love. And without singing Kumbaya, I think there is something there about how 
we find those points of connection in politics rather than just going back always to those points of conflict. You must be a big fan of Old Town Road with Little Nas X uh, <laughs> featuring Billy Ray Cyrus, another another great collaboration <laughs> with, uh, or, you know, or, or this podcast, another, another great collaboration, collaboration yes. between incongruous partners. In terms of Labor Greens fights, there was a, some Labor Greens cooperation last week in a Greens amendment to create a legal right for employees to disconnect mm. after work hours was passed in the Labor Closing Loopholes Bill. Did respondents to the polls support that measure? Yes, and thank you for sniffing the wind and getting it in the cycle before anyone was talking about it, Paul. Um, overall, it is has the support of 59% of voters, 15% opposed, 26% percent in the middle. And in terms of voting intention, support of 68% of Labor voters and 68% of Green voters. So again, there is a value alignment amongst these parties on issues like this. I think you can look at the workplace bills, you can look at some of the work that's been done on climate change, on integrity, and of course, the unsuccessful but galvanising campaign that was The Voice to sort of form a pretty compelling thesis which I kind of posited at the start of this term, and I don't think we go back to enough because the rights in opposition, we tend to think about this as being a government where the fault lines are on the right, but there is this really interesting dynamic on the left because of the number of other elected reps and without even talking about the teals and the important bulwark, they still play between a future Liberal government and, you know, a broad progressive coalition. So, you know, some people sort of think the sky's going to fall in when people talk about Labor-Green collaboration and they go back to saying 2013 to 20 was the proof that it never works. But the numbers say inevitably, particularly if younger people start going green, that there will be almost a necessity for Labor to collaborate on its left flank if it does want to sort of build a long-term time in power. Mm. And you mentioned the galvanising campaign on The Voice. There's also a galvanising campaign from the Coalition on Labor's so-called car and ute tax, which, of course, isn't a tax. It's just a regulation about fuel efficiency standards. So uh, did, did people have strong views on that measure? We just poked them with a number of different positions on that. On one level, this is complicated. Like on one level, it's really simple. We're saying we're going to raise our fuel efficiency standards so, you know, cars aren't as dirty. Like the long-term game is that we're becoming the dumping ground for the world. I think one of the parties was saying it's only Russia and Australia that have low standards. And so we, it's doing two things. It's allowing more polluting cars onto our road, but it's also making EVs less attractive. The arguments go figure that are most effective on this measure are cost of living, that more efficient cars will use less petrol and help drivers save on bills. So that's a winning argument. The vehicle dumping line works very well as well, 52-16. Linking it to EVs is a less persuasive message, but still 41% to 20. And then the message about it actually being the war on the weekend is actually the less persuasive message of all. So, you know, like everything, it's being looked at through cost of living, even though there's a much bigger 
policy logic behind it. Hmm. I don't know. What do you drive? Uh, a, a very beaten up uh, Toyota Yaris. Probably, probably not as beaten up as Max Chandler Mathers. I think I recall seeing a picture of that on social media. It's probably the only Yaris on the road in worse shape than mine. Uh, I've got the most beaten up Camry Hybrid, which was part of Kimil Carr's green car revolution of the last Labor regime. So it still does me proud. Oh, wow, wait, what an aficionado. Um, well, uh, the, the the Taylor Swift concert tickets won't be doing anything for the cost of living. I'm, I'm looking forward to the rash of articles about, you know, what percentage of inflation can be attributed to to the Swifties uh, buying up all, all the merch. But we, we might have to save that one for another day. Thank you so much for, for joining us and for the foresight to ask people about Taylor. Oh, I'm always thinking, Paul, always thinking. This episode was produced by James Milson and Alison Chan. The executive producer is Miles Martignoni. I'm Paul Karp. We'll have another episode of Australian Politics for you this Saturday. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hi, this is Bachelor Clues from Game of Roses, of course, and I want to talk about Club Med. Everybody knows Club Med has been the pioneer of the all-inclusive resort since 1950 with almost 70 resorts worldwide, ranging from beachside destinations in the Caribbean and Mexico to exotic locations like the Maldives and Morocco, or even the mountain destinations like Japan and the European Alps. Dine on delicious gourmet cuisine, enjoy more than 20 activities, and make memories with your family. For more information, visit clubmed.us or call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor.